This is Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show, recorded in the heart of the Midwest, Columbia, Missouri, and broadcast each Thursday evening from 7 till 8 on 89.5 FM, KOPN Columbia. My name is Diana Moxon. It is almost five years since Monica Palmer handed over the Speaking of the Arts reins to me and I nervously started hosting our weekly peak, the arts in mid-Missouri. Back then, the show was on Friday mornings and we broadcast it live from the KOPN studios with my pal and fellow KOPN programmer, Mike Hagen, very kindly doing all the technical wizardry with the soundboard so I could just focus on interviewing arts people. And then the pandemic came along and everything everywhere all at once got changed and I found that I liked making the show from home as no longer recording everything live in the studio gave me a chance to chat with people who were farther away. People like the Missouri Arts Council featured artists who live all over the state or a conductor in New York, a composer in St. Louis, a sculptor in Chicago or a film director in Los Angeles. Everyone has an interesting insight into the art they are making or performing or composing or organising and it's always fun diving into the rabbit hole of someone's life and influences and finding out about why they do what they do and how art has shaped them and how they've been able to express their emotions and inner life through their art making or storytelling or poetry or dance. I'm not as interested in what event is on and how to get tickets and the mechanics of an event, but rather the fascination of the craft of art, the process of creating, the motivation, the how and the why, the decisions a director makes for a stage production, what an actor draws on to play a role, the trial and error of making art. And every now and again, I think it's a good idea to take stock of what you're doing. After five years of making Speaking of the Arts and talking to literally hundreds of arts makers and making almost 250 shows, I thought it was time for a short break to think about what the show is and what the show might be. Radio is a strange medium in that it is almost all one way. We host and produce shows and send them out across the airwaves and wonder, is anyone listening? Did they like what they heard? Do people tune in or turn the radio off when Speaking of the Arts comes on the air? I don't know. And so I am curious to hear from you during this break. What do you like about the show? Is it on at a good or bad time for you? Maybe you listen to the podcast rather than the broadcast. Are there things you would like to hear about that I don't cover? Would you like to hear more about a certain arts genre or aspect of the arts? Would you like to hear more about what's happening in the arts around the state and beyond? So whilst Speaking of the Arts takes a short break for a few weeks, I would love to hear from you. You can email me at diana at kopn.org or speakingofthearts at kopn.org and let me know what you like or don't like or would like to see more of on the show. Maybe there was a conversation that you heard on the show that really moved you or gave you a surprising insight. Maybe there was a person that I chatted with who you wished you could learn more about. Let me know. I would really love to hear from you. 
Meanwhile, I will also be chatting with my arts pals to find out what the arts community might like to see on the show. So drop me an email, diana at kopn.org, even if it's just a simple note to say you enjoy the show, which is a note that would make me really happy. And so on to tonight's show, which once again is a retrospective of a couple of my favorite chats from 2022. And this week, the focus is poetry. As a general rule, I am not a huge fan of poetry. I'm not sure that I own a book of poetry, as generally I find the form and the metaphors more difficult to access than a book of fiction. So clearly, being a rather lazy reader, I always opt for the works of fiction over poetry. But last year, I chatted with a few poets, and contrary to my expectations, they were really enjoyable. And I was reminded that we should all always keep an open mind about things we think we don't like. Back in October and November, I chatted to two Columbia-based poets, both of whom were launching a collection of poetry about their relationship with their mothers – Both were incredibly moving conversations about their poetry collections, which deal with the complexity and the beauty of the mother-daughter relationship, especially when faced with the additional challenges of depression and Alzheimer's. So here, once again, are my conversations with Barbara Harris-Leonard and Lynn Jensen-Lampy. Enjoy. November is Alzheimer's Awareness Month, and there can be few of us who have not felt some ripple of grief that dementia or Alzheimer's sets in motion, maybe directly through a parent, a close relative or partner's diagnosis, or indirectly through watching a friend navigate the devastating progress of the disease in someone close to them. For my guest, poet Barbara Harris-Leonard, Alzheimer's stole her mother, Barbara Montgomery Harris, who died on April 3rd, 2016, at the age of 89, after battling Alzheimer's for at least 13 years. For those who care for a loved one with the disease, it is a fraught and complicated journey of grief, disintegration, conflicting emotions that ricochet between love and fear, obligation and exhaustion. When it afflicts your own parent, you watch your rock erode, the life you shared together fragmenting slowly until the person before you is neither recognisable to you nor themselves. I know this only too well. My father developed vascular dementia as a result of multiple small strokes. The man who had so proudly loved and cared for me and lifted me up into the world ended his life as helpless as a baby. And I wondered constantly, what kind of daughter am I who lives across an ocean? For Barbara Harris-Leonard, poetry was a way to grieve. She describes herself as a poet weaver, searching deep within herself to excavate the feelings that need to be exposed to the light so that each facet of her grief can be reassembled into words. As she writes, grief is a beautiful jewel with cutting edges, a diamond with its own symmetry. And last month saw the publication of her collection of poems about her relationship with her mother, their deep mother-daughter connection, and as she says, the unresolved pain of their mother wounds. The collection is titled Three Penny Memories, a poetic memoir, and I am so delighted that Barbara Leonard is here to talk about her book and her writing. Welcome to Speaking of the Arts, Barbara. Oh, thank you, Diana. I'm really pleased to be here, and you Your introduction was beautiful. 
Well, thank it you. It brought tears to my eyes. Well, your book brought tears to my eyes, so there we go. We're <laughs> oh. quits now. <laughs> okay, now we're ha- now we're even. We're even. You cover so much ground in this collection, and in many ways, it feels like a work of narrative nonfiction as much as a book of poetry. As you take us to so many parts of your life that I feel like I must have known you for years. Do you feel like a storyteller whose medium is poetry or a poet who tells stories? Oh, my goodness. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good question. The editor of Free Verse Revolution calls me a storyteller. (laughs) So since she publishes poetry, maybe I'm both. (laughs) (laughs) I originally did a storyboard I was thinking I would write a memoir in in prose, but I just kept collecting poems. And so I think I'm both, but I'm not sure if I'm more one than the other. It is definitely a medium that you excel in. You have a beautiful way of telling a full story using such concise, beautiful language. Oh, thank you. You know, our mothers were both born in 1927. So themselves children of mothers of the Victorian age, a time when you kept your emotions to yourself and you just got on with it. And we, of course, live in an age that is so different. We are encouraged to share our emotions, to be open and honest about our feelings. And sometimes I feel my mother wincing at how much we put out there. And I wonder whether you sense your mother's thoughts on your own poetry about her. Oh, yes. (laughs) I always try to sense into what she might be thinking if she were sitting next to me. She was always supportive of my poetry, both she and my dad were. And I feel because the book works toward forgiveness and, you know, it's a love story. Mm. So I just have a feeling she would be very happy with it. But, you know, it's hard to know, you know. (laughs) She was always a proud mother of her kids. Were you able to read any to her while she was still alive? I think I did most of the writing after she died, actually. So when she died 2016, I was still working full-time and gradually helping her more and more and more and more. And then after she died, I decided I would retire the next year. And that's when I got my WordPress blog set up and I started really putting more attention to my writing. Poems just started pouring out about her more and more. And then when I realized, I think, oh, I might have enough for a book, I started thinking about making that a goal. And I took a course called Memoir Writing, Inc., I-N-K. It was taught online by Alison Waring. She's a famous memoirist. And she wasn't teaching poetic memoir, but she taught me how to put a memoir together. So that's how what I did in my book. Had you been writing poetry all your life or were you writing narratively? Mostly narratively, but I I started playing around with writing when I was age eight and and my parents would actually have me read poetry to their friends. <laughs> so I started doing readings when I was a, a little kid, but with <laughs> school and work and then, you know, uh, everything, I always tend to put so much into, I would put so much into my job and then and helping my mother. I, I gave up a lot of social life to help my mother mm. because I also had work to do. So yeah, I started writing at age eight and then I started publishing in college, but not very much, not till after I retired. Well, there were so many components to the story of your journey through life, choices that were made 
not by you, before you were born, but that changed your own life, a life-threatening illness that altered your childhood, all of which influence how the light refracts on your memories of your mother and and your role as her end-of-life caregiver. And I would love for you to read for us the very first poem in the book, Excavating the Heart Wall of Grief, which is a beautiful introduction to the three chapters in your memoir titled Light, Dust and Echo. Would you read it for us? Thank you. Excavating the Heart Wall of Grief. I excavate my soul, salvage the shards, that comprise my mosaic, brush away the shades of a soiled past, striking something hard. I coax it loose, examine it, toss it aside. Some fragments yield to my touch, others cut. I must dredge the diamanting dark to dismantle the heart wall of grief, even if there is bloodletting. Mother's sorrow inherited from her mother the law of abandoned excavations, some artifacts buried so deep that the air there coughs up afflictions. I'm the mandala passed down from mother to daughter, mother to daughter, mother to daughter. But I have no daughters, no lineage, my mother's unwitting mistake. Bad medicine stole my womb. Can I transmute the loss into a healing salve? As I break down the walls, other stories tumble out. My childhood illness and a miscarriage. Our near deaths, broken wombs, secrets aslant. The arcs of two lives stretch into a double rainbow. A mother-daughter love story, the hue of copper. The expanse into light, dust, and echo. Tell us a little bit about that work. This actually started out as a long prose introduction, and I trimmed it down into this poem. I was just thinking about how the heart wall of grief is that barrier we put up to hide our our sorrow. And uh, Carl Jung said, whatever lies buried will project out as anger. And so I liked, I was thinking about how in order for me to get to the root of the grief— and also the answer to my uncle's question, do you love your mother, which really prompted the whole book and the whole journey, me thinking about my mother and my love for her, I had to go inside. And so I wanted to get through the rubble and take down that wall, you know, emotions, grief, loss, whatever could be revealed, reveal to heal is one of my slogans. I knew it would be painful, It would there would be bloodletting, there would be facing oneself, because I, you know, one thing I feared was that this book would offend people because I'm here, my mother's suffering from Alzheimer's, and when I do a reading, some poems actually make people cry, but some poems actually make them laugh, and that tragic and comedic elements work together quite well in art, I think, and um, so I just saw this poem as a symbolic prologue, saying I'm ready to go inside and do the work I need to do in order to answer my uncle's question, which which was the trigger for this memoir. Right, that is. My next question for you is the catalyst for the book is the question that your favorite uncle asked you, which seems so out of left field, so shocking. Yes. And ultimately you seek counseling. And the question was simply, 
do you love your mother? Right. Which is such a strange question. Tell me about that moment. Yes. Well, I called my uncle to tell him, mom's decided to move here. I, I asked mom, I said, please pick a child. <laughs> you have seven kids. Pick a child that you can live close to, who can help you, you know. And so it just came to the point she had to choose a kid. And so she chose to come here. And I was really happy. And so I was telling him I was really happy. And then all of a sudden he says, Barbara, do you love your mother? And I was caught taken aback. You know, what? That was sort of left field. And he said it twice. And I, I said, you know, I had to think, will he believe my answer? You know, I said, yes, of course. <laughs> but maybe he wanted to know if I would take care of her. Mm. You know, I don't know. I mean, I was obviously very happy. <laughs> and relieved that she was coming. So the question was really out of left field. Well, you have two poems in the collection yeah. which kind of hang on this question, and I wondered if you would read for us one of those, and I chose the one daughter like mother. Yeah, this is a good poem to be early in the book. It's a, a little bit of a summary. Daughter like mother. Mother and I were very uh, entwined and tangled similar and yet different and yet you know and also there are three maladies in the book measles encephalitis which she helped me through as when I was six going on seven then later Alzheimer's and I helped her and both of those brain injuries involve memory loss and then also when I was in utero she was prescribed diethylstilbestrol DES it was prescribed for women spotting to prevent miscarriages. Well, it actually never did prevent a miscarriage, but it did ruin the daughters and sons who were born. They had cancer scares, malformed reproductive organs, and a lot of other after effects. So this poem refers to, the, to three maladies as well. Daughter like mother. Do you love her? Those haunting words. I seek counseling. Grief awaits cure. List life traumas. Where to begin? Grief emerges in the young. With birth there is loss. Mom's swaddling womb, my evictor. A shy child, I am clinging, tremulous. Have panic attacks in the first grade. I'm six going on seven. Measles encephalitis cripples. Paralysis, coma, and a near death. Heaven says no. My second birth, into a wheelchair, isolation, loneliness. Grief, heavy, bearing, brittle seed in earth's womb. I'm trapped in the chair. From mom, the gumption to walk again when doctors said no. Brain damage, aftermath of encephalitis, tears, constant crying, problems with learning. I lack confidence, withdraw. Bullies torment me. Mom, my comforter. I look back at this viral swelling plague, many memories extinguished. I can relate, Mom, to how histories crumble, how memories burn off like the dew and hot sun. Our paths align. You held me, now I hold you. And we should point out that this is before the time when a measles vaccine was available. I guess this happened to you in the 1950s. So... As soon as the vaccines for polio and measles, rubella, and all that came out, my parents were first in line to make sure all their kids were vaccinated. 
And to this day, I get all my vaccinations <laughs> because I still have PTSD from that illness. Right. Before we dive into the poems that reflect on your mother's Alzheimer's, I want to go back in time to you as a child. And, and when you began to write, your father was a college professor and a poet. And like you said earlier, your parents used to ask you to read your poems to the mm. dinner guests, which I just love that you get to perform your poems before yeah. going to bed. Where did your love of writing start? Well, at age eight, I was, I felt compelled to write. And I, I've talked to many writers who at that age seemed to kind of turn on to it, maybe from reading my parents reading stories to me. But also when I was sick with encephalitis, I did have a near-death experience. And the, there's poetry in there about thinking I was with my grandfather mm. who was dying in the same hospital and being told by these beings, go back to your room. I, and I say, I want to go with him. No, go back to your room. He was dying. I think that maybe in some way we were, this sounds bizarre, met in a coma. I don't know, but... I was standing and talking to him, but I knew at that point I couldn't. I, I think I went into a coma is why my parents put me in the hospital, because my next memory was waking up out of the coma and um, being able to talk but not walk. So that was you know, maybe more than a dream. I don't know. But then I just felt like I wanted to express certain thoughts, you know, like that I was inspired to write or tell people and... I think that had an effect on my brain or something. And maybe I had some problems learning, but I think I I wanted to try, you know, to write because it was hard for me to learn after the encephalitis. You have several works in the chapter light which explore this time of illness with measles encephalitis. And I wonder, when you were a child and you were writing your works, did you write about that time and how much do these contemporary poems incorporate memories that you had archived from the works you wrote as a child versus your adult recollections of that time? At the time, I was confused. I was really too young to understand what had happened to me. It wasn't in my full consciousness. I was still healing even after I came home from the hospital and after I taught myself to walk again. I was still healing emotionally. I didn't understand why I had so much trouble in school. So I, I really wasn't conscious. It took for years, I replayed this whole experience over and over in my in my mind. And after I retired and I had time, I started doing some uh, memoir writing about it and published some essays about measles encephalitis and also Alzheimer's with my mom. I, so I did some memoir writing. I really didn't process it fully until... I could retire, which is odd. But the the trauma, I, I never could forget the trauma, and it just kept replaying over and over in my mind. And so I wanted to make sense of it because it struck me. I always thought about my dream with my grandfather, and I thought, but then it hit me as in, you know, once I could put my mind on it and not mom and my work and family. But I thought, wait a minute, you know, I couldn't talk. I couldn't stand by his bed. That very vivid experience was not, you know, happening in, on this plane, you know. The next poem I would love to have you read, well, I had a choice of two because I couldn't decide between them. They both really look at, as you said, that entanglement with your mother, the trauma that you both went through at this time and how she cared for you at that time. There's one called The Bear Went Over the Mountain 
And there's one called This Brittle Seed. Which of those would you like to read? The bare one over the mountain is more concrete. And the, This Brittle Seed is uh, it's more symbolic. So I don't know. If you want something more memoir-like or more symbolic, I can... <laughs> Let's get more um, memoir-like, and that's in the okay, title of the, the book. Okay, the bear went over the mountain. Yeah, this is more like a story. In my book, I have animals, and I think of a bear. Bears uh, are protective, like especially mother bears. And the bear went over the mountain. One, a month-long coma from encephalitis. I awaken in a cold, searing light. A man in white. Am I dead? The bear went over the mountain. Say it, dear. The bear went over the mountain. She'll be fine. The needles pricking my legs can't make them move. Mother always believes a doctor's prognosis. But she won't walk again. Two, I never consider mom's ability to be at my side daily, yet still care for her three other children, one a baby. The storybooks, her gifts of ice cream cones. One day I trick her into giving up both cones. I ask for the chocolate one. Her choice. Then delight in the licorice one, eating both so fast that, that the ice cream doesn't melt, like my gratitude does. Three, mom, my she-bear, her quick bite. She growls, claws off the strangers who enter my room and loom over my paralyzed body. Claws at the impatient nurse who leaves me on the toilet for two hours. Mom never complains about my level of care. Instead, she holds me in my despair. Hmm. One of the signatures of compelling writing is turmoil and the search for resolution without conflict. There's no story to tell. And your memoir is such a rich kaleidoscope of human emotion. And I, I wonder what epiphanies revealed themselves to you as you put this collection together. Mm, that's a great question. I think, you know, as I was exploring, I was, I was so impressed in a way I... I knew all these things about my mother and me, but when I started thinking about them as a poet and a writer, and I thought, you know, these three maladies bring together so many interesting comparisons between us. You know, I always say, like, we, we were either in dance or flight, you know. And the whole concept of the mother wound, I realized how deep it was in both of us because she... Um, and this was one thing about the book that I had I struggled with whether or not to to refer to her her freshman year in college and her you know she got pregnant she had to have an abortion because in the 1940s that was the option women weren't really given a choice I don't think or at least her parents didn't give her a choice she was pro life and I think that that really bothered her her whole life that that happened and I tried to talk to her about it but she wouldn't. But she went on to have seven kids. And I couldn't have any because of the DES. I had a misshapen uterus. It was a T-shape. And so I, I actually had a miscarriage, very painful. And I could, so I, while she could have bear many children, I could not. And she had this expectation in me that I would, that I would give her a lot of grandchildren, I think. And and I told her, you know, I don't blame you for this. You follow the doctor's orders. But what really hurt, and I reveal it in one poem, I think so that this was the deepest wound, was that 
she somehow forgot, and this was even before a diagnosis of Alzheimer's, way before, but she kind of made me feel bad because I I was childless. Mm. And she had told me many years, especially when I was in childbearing years, that people who don't have kids are selfish. So she was raised with this expectation. It's a social thing, social pressure, you know. So that's what hurt me, and I had to really work on that because... Here I was constantly reminded, while well, I'm a daughter taking care of my mother, who's going to take care of me? <laughs> you know? But that was something that kept digging into me. So I decided I'm going to go ahead and keep those poems because that's where the heart wall, you know, that's the biggest thing behind the heart wall, is what I didn't want to swallow that grief to protect her. I wanted it to come out and be healed so that I could love her even more, you know, so that I could forgive her, you know. And maybe she was jealous because I was getting college degree and going to grad school, and she couldn't do those things. I have that poem in the last part of the book, Mom's Dreams. So her kids were her dreams. She had dreams, but she ended up making her kids her dreams. Where I had a public life, she had a private life in a way, you know. Well, there are so many heart-wrenching works about the progression of your mother's Alzheimer's that it's impossible to pick just one. There's stories about finding her somewhere to live, the road trip from hell, the confusions, (laughs) dealing with care homes and doctors. I wonder which of the many poems for you captures best that time and, and if you would read one of those for us. We could read Mom's Pickles. Okay, let's do Mom's Pickles. It's kind of lighthearted, and we've been talking. Okay, Mom's Pickles. So, you know, here I am. I'm working full-time. Teaching English as a second language in our program was just very intense. And I taught writing, so I would also, also have a lot of grading. But I would get home, and the answering machine would be beeping. This is called Mom's Pickles. Mom said, I used to take care of you. Now you take care of me. That's my epigraph. The answering machine impatiently beeps like an ambulance siren. Message one. The caller's voice drones. Hun, I'm in a pickle. (sighs) My insurance dropped me. Oh, the girl didn't come again today. Call me. Click. No, there would be these deep sighs. Message two. I hear a sigh. Hello, hon, I'm in a pickle. The checkbook's missing. And I'm diabetic, just found out. Call me, click. Message three. The voice catches. Hello, hon, it's mom, I'm in a pickle. There was a man in my room last night. At the foot of my bed. Call me, click. And is this when she is living in assisted living, or this is when she's still at home? She was in independent living, so she had an apartment. And the thing is, the door was supposed to be locked in terms of the guy who showed up in her room. And then they had a security person who would check the doors. But I don't know how her door became unlocked unless she left the room and returned and didn't lock it, and he never checked again. I don't know. It's hard to know. My dad used to talk about the bedroom boys. The bedroom boys were here last night. And we're like, what did the bedroom boys do? They took my money. 
Okay. Oh, yeah. The bedroom boys. We never knew who the bedroom boys were. But. Right. So your collection is called Three Penny Memories. Tell me about the title. Right. So the title, when mom was at the end of life, so some siblings were coming to be with her, which was really beautiful. So I was with two brothers. We were running to get some lunch, and I opened the car door, and there on the asphalt were three bright, shiny pennies lined up in a perfect row. It was just, if I had taken a, a ruler, I could have measured it all. <laughs> I, I could kind of hear my mother saying, pick them up, pick them up. And I said back, no, I'm not going to, because that was how we would kind of squabble. So she would end up picking up pennies I refused to pick up. So I thought, if someone had dropped these pennies, they wouldn't land in a perfect row. And who would take time on a parking lot to line up three pennies? <laughs> so, but I... I knew that maybe there was some message here for me because I'm a poet, I think, in symbols. But I didn't pick up the pennies because I was I didn't want to accept the message. And then it turned out she died on April 3rd. Mm. And when I was taking the memoir class, Alison Waring taught us to put our memoir into a container, you know, have a theme. So I thought, well, you know, there's a lot of threes in my book. And that three penny thing was was very traumatic and meaningful. So I decided to call it Three Penny Memories. And I thought that's a I didn't know if I'd like the title, but I picked it. And then I realized all the threes in the book, the three maladies, um, the nurses, if they asked mom three times and she refused three times, they wouldn't give her a shower or change her clothes um, and that kind of thing. So all these little threes kept coming up in the book. Mm. As I journeyed with you through the book, there was one question that seemed to remain unresolved, and, and that was, why did your uncle ask you? I wondered if you'd ever had that conversation with him, why he said, your mother, hun, do you love her? I know. I was too scared to ask him. I, I was afraid to ask him because I was afraid maybe I had done something wrong and my mom had told him or I disappointed her in some way. Even when he, he'd come to visit two or three times, I never asked him because I didn't want to bring up anything unpleasant. <laughs> but a kind of uh, inner feeling I have is that maybe he asked it to make me think, to remind me how important loving her was at this point in her life. Maybe. Yeah. But I remember saying to her, <laughs> You know, Mom, you know, maybe one day I'll come and, and you'll say, oh, you're so much nicer than my daughter, Barbara. And she said, oh, I don't ever think I would say that. I would never mean to hurt you. Mm. So I wrote a poem about that. It's in the last part of the book. It is. And I looked at that one, but actually I chose for our final reading, I chose the one next to it, which is called Farewell, My Flower, which is so elegic and a nice ending. Yeah, I really like this poem. Farewell, my flower. How short was your stay? I took you for granted, promised I would stop by more often. I was too caught up in my mindless days to sit with you in your garden. Your lush blooms made the sun smile. Your poise, your grace, holy gifts. Even when the snow surprised us all, you held your back up your crown never drooping, your resilience tricked me into complacency. Still you danced. 
until your beauty crumbled into the beds of periwinkle, huddled to catch you, until the breeze gently blew your ash into soil. That really speaks to me about just time missed, time away. We have our lives and we, in my case, live in different continents. And and then when the end comes, you feel guilty about that time that you right. didn't spend with them. Well, Barbara Harris Leonard's collection of poetry, Three Penny Memories, a poetic memoir, is published by Experiments in Fiction and is available at Skylark Bookshop. And you can also connect with Barbara via her website, extraordinarysunshineweaver.blog. Barbara, thank you so much for the honesty and raw truths of your collection and for sharing it with the world. It's an act of bravery. Thank you so much for sharing it with us today. Oh, thank you, Diane. Anna, thank you for this great interview. I appreciate you. The mother-daughter relationship can be complex, even in lives that are uncomplicated. I don't remember a time when the fear of losing my mother was anything other than a wound that I would pick at any time doubt or insecurity would plague me. Yet I also often felt suffocated by her fierce love for me and her desire to live vicariously through me, always seeking more and more details about how I lived. For many years after she died, that perpetual sense of both holding her tight and pushing her away haunted my dreams, in which she would come back to life as if her death had just been a game, and I would be super angry with her, not because of the trick, but because it meant I would have to go through the grief of losing her all over again. Stay dead, I would shout at her in my dreams, and then wake up and feel wrecked with guilt. I was simultaneously crushed and also bizarrely liberated by her death. And I wish I'd had the eloquence and poetry both to celebrate and mourn her in writing, but I never had the patience to try. But my next guest did. Lynn Jensen Lampy's first full-length collection of poems titled Talk Smack to a Hurricane is a work of deep elegy and beauty all about her mother and their relationship. It is a journey into the joy and suffering of their bond and the complexity of navigating their relationship through her mother's inexplicable mental shift after Lampy's birth and the damage wrought upon her mother by decades of invasive and destructive psychiatric intervention and a time before postpartum mental health was a thing that the medical profession understood. It is a collection that traverses the pain, anger, sadness and shame of having a mum that wasn't like other mums, that eloquently details neglect, confusion, mental health and love, and which, as one reviewer wrote, is a work of deep reconciliation formed through deft lyricism and rigorous poetics of the restorative possibilities of profound love. Lynn, welcome to Speaking of the Arts. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. My relationship with my mother feels like a breeze compared to the pain and confusion that suffused yours. But I felt through your words that same sense of holding tight and pushing away. And I found myself picking at that wound again of, I could have been a better daughter. Tell me about the catharsis for you of producing this collection. Well, I think that I never really thought of the word catharsis, but it did put things in perspective for me. I realized how much I loved my mother and I realized how much she loved me and just that it was marred by the 
circumstances um, of the relationship and that she was gone quite a bit, that when she was present, she wasn't necessarily herself and wasn't always available in the way that I, I wanted her to be. Tell us about your mom, especially what you know about her as a young woman before you were born, before this mental shift. Well, the word that comes to mind is vivacious. I, my father said that to me. I, it's evident in photos of her as a young girl. She had many friends. She was in theater. She was very, very smart. She, at 15 or 16, she was one of only two girls in the whole United States chosen to go to Puerto Rico for an international Girl Scout convention. She was amazing in many ways. She she lived in the French house when she was in college, which meant they just spoke French 24-7. She, she did all kinds of things. She taught horseback riding. She was a lifeguard. She, even after I was born, she was part of an, an interracial group called the Dialogue Group. It was black and white women in Baton Rouge who got together to talk about racial issues and, and personal things in their lives. So she, she did many, many things to be proud of. And yet somehow I let my own feelings about mental illness dull the pride that I could have felt in her achievements. So you were born in 1959, at a time when the American Psychiatric Association had a relatively new manual at their disposal, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, known as the DSM-1. And that dictated pretty much all psychiatric treatment, but it was not full of understanding of postpartum depression. So what happened after you were born? Well, the best I know is... Well, in the book, there's a series of erasure poems, eight poems based on eight pages of a letter she wrote the day after I was born. And on that day, she was ecstatic to be a new mom and was even already looking forward to having another child. Sometime between then and when I was about a month old, she had enough problems and instability and I think, periods of psychosis that she was sent away to a hospital at an Air Force base in Florida. And I know at that point in time, some other couples or other women on the base, other wives, took care of me while my dad was trying to figure out where my mother went because the Air Force didn't inform him. They just sent her, and mm -hmm. he had to go through all kinds of hoops to figure out where she was so he could get a transfer. And he contacted my maternal grandmother, and she ended up coming up to Newfoundland where I was born and got me, I was maybe two or three weeks old, and took me back with her to Baton Rouge, my father transferred to Florida, and as far as I know, because I don't remember, of course, I didn't see much of either parent till I was about a year old. Your writing is so honest about 
the confusion of, as a child and also the love and the yearning and the adoration we have for these super beings who are our mothers. How as children, we long to be like them. And I wonder if you would talk about and read for us the opening poem in the collection titled Five Photographs Square with My Mother's Truth. Sure. And this is based on four photos and the last one is is a really strong sort of compilation of a thing that happened over and over, a good thing. Five photographs square with my mother's truth. She grips me, the ceramic bird at the five and dime she can't bear to put back on the shelf. I mug for the camera, snug in her arms and out of the drifts, feed myself a mitten of snow. She wonders how she'll pay rent. She lounges in pajamas a couple weeks after my birth, holds my whole left hand with her thumb and forefinger. Caught in profile, she smiles her cheekbone and chin into a question mark without a question. We push a rotary mower, my mother in capris and me in diapers. I stretch, belly out, to reach her hands on the wooden handle. She closes her eyes, breathes in her favorite scent, cut grass in summer. The two of us stand on the tarmac, minutes before she hoists me on her hip and climbs metal stairs to board the plane. She wears pearls, high heels, a black sheath dress. I'm in pleats, patent leather shoes, in awe. I sprawl our green vinyl couch, head in her lap. My mother strokes my hair, tucks it behind my ear, her hands African violet velvet and careful as tears. Like always, she calls me doll, hopes I never break the way she does. I love the pleats and patent leather shoes and or I feel like there's a photograph of me somewhere wearing the same things. <laughs> Did you find truths through your writing that you hadn't previously been conscious of? You talked about maybe getting a different perspective and understanding your mother's love. Can you expand on that a little bit for me? I think the biggest thing didn't hit me until I was writing the acknowledgments, which was the very last thing I wrote. And it was that she really had been there all the time, emotionally all the time. It wasn't always expressed. She wasn't able to. But really, deep down, she was there. When I was a kid, and she would have a psychotic episode, and and there was one time in particular she called me names. And at the time, I and for years after, I thought that was her real heart. What she said in those moments was the truth. Mm. And the rest of the time was just being nice. And it really cemented for me, the writing of this book cemented for me that, no, I had it backwards, that the time she was psychotic, that wasn't really the truth. And I think going through situations and really seeking the emotional truth of a situation, instead of getting hung up on the actual details, I think that really helped me sort things out in myself and realize more about our 
relationship, that it was not so much that the relationship was tenuous, but our understanding of the relationship was tenuous. So did writing this book, in a way, give you back your mother? I think so. I I would say so. In fact, it sounds even funny to say think. I do feel that. It just let me appreciate more parts of her. I mean, kids can never really understand their parents as people, Hmm. I think. And so instead of feeling cheated out of a mother, instead of feeling like psychiatry took my mother from me, I made peace with the mother that I had, with with the amount of mothering that I had, I guess is one way to put it. Of course, the sad truth is that your mother was one of countless millions of women who, since the beginning of, let's call it male-centered medical care, fell victim to misunderstanding and misdiagnosis. And that feels eerily on topic once again as the overturning of Roe v. Wade has removed Mm -hmm. our right to control our own bodies. And I think one of the most powerful works in your book is about that. Would you talk a little bit about the poem titled Fingered and then read that one for us? Sure. When I first started writing these poems, they weren't poems at all. I had the intention of writing a nonfiction book about the particular state hospital that my mother had been in. And I didn't get too far down that path before I realized that I wanted to write that because I was angry at the system that subjected her to all of these various treatments. And that was that was part of what changed her or robbed us of of the person she was or that she had been. And so I started writing all these poems. And at some point, I had to circle back around to this issue of anger at psychiatry. And I started looking up various records. And part of this was the research I was doing into that state hospital. And all of those things ended up becoming this Poem fingered. Fingered. I write poems with hands like hers. Rounded fingertips smudge the page with mental health and mental illness. Blister as power dictates the same old social contract between doctor and patient. Love me, revere me, obey me, I'll say you're healthy. In 1883, the state insane asylum in Jackson, Louisiana, swallowed Emma Caraby, 58. Recorded diagnosis, noisy and troublesome. Viola Wade, 36, deceptive in her affections. Comfort Kemp, 27, homicidal mania due to giving birth. Renamed East Louisiana State Hospital, the asylum admitted Louise, 34, my mother, already tethered in 1968 to the DSM via the fraying rope of schizophrenia and manic depression, bipolar disorder with psychotic features due to giving birth. Being pregnant changed her brain chemistry, she said. I heard 
you cause my crazy, never get pregnant. But maybe she was telling me every woman changes after making a child, and she was willing to risk being someone new again. She'd already worn skins named daughter, writer, smoker, grad student, traveler, wife, mother, unmothering when another family adopted her first child, patient, and now mother again, juggernaut of emotions and hormones splatter small rooms of the heart, chemical red, track years in sulfur and saffron, kitten heels and paper slippers. Palmistry considers conic fingers a sign of creativity, intuition. Psychiatry considers womanhood a disease. That line where she says, I guess she's saying to you, never get pregnant, is uh, something my mother said to me as well. And so it makes me wonder whether, unknown, beknownst to me, my mother had maybe gone through a postpartum depression mm-hmm. and advised me never to do the same thing, which I must admit I followed her advice. You know, I'm a stepmom. I've never given birth to a child either. And I don't really think my mother actually said never get pregnant, but that was when you asked about realizations I had when I was writing. That was one of the realizations that that there's no way to get through pregnancy unchanged. And frankly, there's no way to get through motherhood unchanged either, whether you've birthed a child or not. Mm. Um, so, so my idea that there was this person who was my mother and who was a certain way, and that then when I'm born and I'm growing up, that she's going to remain the same. I mean, that was really, it was something that wouldn't have been true if my mother you know, if she didn't have a mental illness, she would still be somebody who would have changed throughout my life, who I wouldn't have known in this, um, in the same way that my father or her friends had known her. Mm. So in some ways, I had unrealistic expectations. And that's not to say that I, I mean, I still feel anger sometimes at at, at psychiatry and psychiatrists and Many practitioners have an arrogance, and I'm not going to say all practitioners because people have a lot of compassion and and talent and and good instincts and are really helpful. My mother had some very helpful psychiatrists. Um, Yeah, it's it's really complicated. Lynn Jensen Lampier's collection of poems titled Talk Smack to a Hurricane, published by Ice Flow Press, can be found at local bookstores. And you can also find out more about Lynn on her website at lynnjensenlampier.com. And that's spelled L-Y-N-N-E, Jensen, J-E-N-S-E-N, Lampy, L-A-M-P-E, lynnjensenlampier.com. Lynn, thank you so much for sharing so much of your life with the world. And I wish we had time to read so many more of the works in the book because they are works that I just want to go back to time and time again. I, I really appreciate the opportunity and I, I really appreciated the questions that you asked because, you know, it's really been hard to sort of summarize what the book is about because it is about my mother and our relationship but then it's about psychiatry and how they view women and women's concerns it's about 
Jewish heritage and anti-Semitism. It's about being a child who all of a sudden, you know, is aware of this other child that preceded them, you know. So, I mean, there's just, and I I know that's true of everybody's books, but it really makes you realize how can you best distill what's on the page and... And and to just say something's complicated, I'm like, well, yeah, I mean, everything's complicated. It is. We do live in complicated times, but we aren't all able to write so eloquently about it. So I really appreciate what you have given us and for making time to chat today. Thank you, Diane. I really appreciate it. that is it for another week all the speaking of the arts episodes are available as podcasts which you can hear on spotify just search for speaking of the arts and of course you can always connect through the kopn website at kopn.org thank you to my guests this evening columbia poets barbara harris leonard and Lynn Jensen Lampy. Thanks, as always, to guitarist Yasmin Williams, whose song, Restless Heart, opens and closes the show. You can hear more of her music on Spotify and on her website at yasminwilliamsmusic.com. Finally... Thank you so much for listening. I meant what I said at the top of the show, that over the next few weeks while Speaking of the Arts takes a break, I would really like to hear from you about what you like or don't like about the show, maybe what you would like to hear more of. Send me an email at diana at kopn.org. So until Speaking of the Arts returns, my name is Diana Moxon and I will be back in a little while with more peeks behind the arts curtain. Until then, I'm going to trust you. Stay arty, Missouri. Missouri.